over how far we'll get today. Probably not too far. More, probably more let's say preliminary uh, session. Uh, that being the case, I want to just take this opportunity to make some uh, to mention two things to you, which are not directly related to this. Uh, number one, in case, although I hope uh, many of you have taken this for granted, but in case you haven't, uh, I mean, there, be, there will be regular sedavim in the shiva, with the exception of, you know, the intermission for the, for the examinations, but otherwise there will be regular sedavim until the end of June. So, keep that, yeah, keep that in mind. Uh, this is number one. What? <laughs> no, not soon. No, not not till the end of June. You have. Uh, yeah. Well, there's what? Mm-hmm. I can't even. <laughs> you sure shouldn't have a bikini then. Why? Then you'll have you'll have time after you after the college exam. Not time for What? Why are you worried? I have that threat. You just finished the I'll discuss the other things we'll discuss later. Well, we'll see them. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, I want to mention something else here. Uh, this is till the end of June, but uh, hopefully you want to learn during the summer too. So, there will be, you know, this summer, uh, you know, for the past few summers, well, some of you may not know this, for those who weren't here uh, previously, but for the past couple of summers, Rabban has been saying, sure, we have Anselvetri during the summer. Uh, I'm not. I think the Masichta has been more or less unofficially selected. But I don't believe this uh, has been absolutely uh, determined. I don't know. I don't want to mention if it hasn't been announced. So, uh, but I, I would, um, I would urge you very, very strongly, uh, if at all possible. I know in certain cases there's some practical difficulties, but if at all possible, I would urge you very strongly to to take advantage. Uh, of this. I mean, the Shulam, he says more or less until uh, the middle of August, I suppose. Uh, I would urge you for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, of course, due to the fact that during the year you have many other Shibudim, so the summer offer offers an opportunity to, uh, to devote yourself more fully to learning than you're able to do during the year. And uh, uh, so this in itself is of importance. But second, I think particularly because of the fact that uh, I mean, it is about specifically who will be saying the shulim, uh, and I think that the opportunity to be exposed to him is one that you ought to, to take advantage of. I don't know how many of you are at all uh, familiar with him. I know him. Uh, I am personally one of his earlier talmidim. I learned from Rabban when he was in Chaim Belinia 15 years ago, and uh, it's. I mean, the exposure to him, I mean, not only in Laulan, and of course, there's a tremendous amount to be gotten from him in Laulan, but apart from the simply the, the sheer force of personality, which is not a force which is externally visible necessarily, but simply the, uh, I mean, the fact that you see someone who's, who's an Adam Gadol, I mean, clearly, without any, any qualification, without any, any questions arising of any type, and uh, this in itself is a tremendous experience. I know I can speak for myself in this regard. I know, of course, when I came to him, I was, I was younger than, than most of you are, and I was, I was learning full-time, so I didn't have other problems. But I know for myself that it had, at the time, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous impact. I mean, I found myself overwhelmed. And again, not, uh, not because of any direct 
effort on his part somehow to impinge upon the Bhagavad and we were his share we we generally imagine he didn't even know our names he was uh, I mean that's how at least what I imagined at the time I remember he once called on me by name and I was uh, I was startled <laughs> but uh, it's not so much this was simply the I said I mean simply the you see a person who's Kulay Toya Kulay Kedish and it's it's an experience not to be missed now of course some of you hopefully will learning by Abba anyways in due time but I don't think one can have too much of him and uh, I think the opportunity to be exposed to him that much more fully in a somewhat earlier phase some of you uh, is one that you should take advantage of and as I say I realize some of you present certain practical difficulties in some instances there are those who want to go home particularly those who are out of town which of course is quite understandable in some cases there may be certain uh, financial considerations, those who feel that they would like to earn some money during the summer, which is also understandable, but uh, I would urge you to make every effort, really. Uh, perhaps now you don't see this quite as clearly as you will later on, I mean, perhaps now making, you know, making some money and so on. Well, in some cases, of course, the question of necessity, I'm not discussing the, uh, those circumstances, but I mean, other instances where it's a question of feeling a little more independent or... Uh, just having a little change or uh, so on. Uh, those instances now, you see a couple of hundred dollars may seem like a lot of money to you, but I mean, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you will, you will look, looking back, you will think what a fool you were to give it away fully eight weeks in order to, uh, to go to a camp or a similar place and uh, earn, uh, earn some money, which at that time will strike you as being a, in comparison of the, in consideration of the time that was given to it, a rather piddling sum. I mean, you who knows, maybe in 10 years you'll, you'll make or lose as much money in the stock market in a week as you might, uh, as you might spend the whole summer just uh, working. And I think you should try to see it from a long-range perspective. I say sometimes when a person is younger, it's hard to, it's hard to see this. Uh, you know, it's, one is a little overwhelmed by the prospect. But uh, it is really a question in this case, I think, and uh, and I think that you should give this a great deal of thought. I, I'm really, I'm truly hopeful that many of you will take advantage of this. It's, to my mind, it's a tremendous opportunity, and it's not every day or every summer that one has the opportunity to be in contact with another Mgodl, and uh, the opportunities should be cherished and they should be used. I mean, you, sh- you shouldn't, you shouldn't let, let it slip. So I hope that uh, you will take this into consideration. All right. Uh, now... Well, I mentioned Laban, I suppose it's partly, uh, <laughs> partly made Yonah the Yemah, I think it's more or less uh, through him that this question of the Hashkafashum, as they're called here, Benela uh, HaPerek, and uh, before, uh, before getting into <laughs> discussing any, anything in particular, I have to simply first just uh, discuss briefly the, simply the question of what, is, what we have to understand by Hashkafashum. What, what the term might suggest, or simply what, what the idea should uh, imply to us. I just want to touch briefly on two things. First of all, simply what the nature of Hashkafe is itself, simply the act, uh, so to speak. And uh, secondly, in this particular context, the, the object. Now, of course, the term Hashkafe generally, uh, I mean, in terms of its, of its semantics, uh, the general idea is that of sight, seeing, vision, view, or something along those lines. 
And uh, this I say is in terms of its original semantics. Of course, we, in a transferred sense, we use it with reference to a general philosophic orientation. Uh, this is not unusual, by the way, although the use of the term which suggests initially vision, but which is used metaphorically with reference to a philosophic orientation. Uh, we have something of the same uh, of the same thing in other languages. Well, in English, you know, for instance, we speak of a world view, a world perspective. Both of these are related to the act of, uh, of seeing, you know, perspective, things like that, spectator, and so on. Or uh, a more familiar word in this connection, which is used, well, stems from German, but is used in English, uh, the word Weltanschauung, which also more or less derived from a stem of uh, vision or, or sight. Uh, this is probably not unusual. Uh, historically, very often, the, among the senses, the sense of vision or sight uh, has been somewhat more associated with, with spiritual elements and been thought of as being, among the senses, a somewhat less uh, grossly physical one. So, for instance, among those who have tended to reject sensory experience, sensual experience as being of, of no value, uh, they tend to look somewhat more kindly on something like uh, anything which involves simply vision in comparison, let us say, with a sense of touch or taste, which they consider to be somewhat grosser senses. For instance, the, by the Neoplatonists, uh, they had a whole hierarchy see, of different senses, which are nobler and which are less noble. Of course, all the senses for them are not too noble, but there are gradations for them within Tumor also, and the sense of sight was stood rather high as being a somewhat purer one. I think the reason for this is quite obvious because, uh, I mean, even among people who don't contemn or condemn the senses, is that you have here something which is less physical in a sense of nature, hence the much easier transference to a sense of to anything which would involve strictly a more uh, a more spiritual type of experience. And uh, we use this constantly. For instance, we speak well in English first. Examples: we speak of a, or a prophet, or a seer, or a visionary, both of course derived from the sense of sight. And similarly in uh, Tanakh also, we even, let's say a term, not Shkofer, which we'll discuss more fully later, but uh, even the simplest term for vision, I mean, Raya, is also used with the God of remember the God of Shmuel, or, uh, or the word, another stem, Chazayin Heim, Chazay, is used constantly, we have with God Nevim, God HaChazay, the first all the time, or simply the word Chazayin, which is always used with regard to the word Chazayin, or Chizayin, and uh, <coughs> uh, similarly, the term hashkafe, which perhaps not so much in Tanakh, although we'll see this in a minute, more in, in the modern context, is used somewhat more with reference to uh, one's worldview or world orientation uh, generally. I just want briefly to comment on the difference between these terms. In other words, while all of these terms, Raya, Chayza, Hashkafe, Mashki, are used with reference to spiritual experiences generally, uh, I would like to distinguish briefly, at least between the two primary ones, uh, between the, the primary verb for vision, in other words, ra'ay, and uh, the term hashkafer more specifically. The word chayze I will set aside, um, because in Lashen Kedish, of course in Aramaic, the stem is the ordinary one for ordinary vision. Chazi, 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 you have it in Gemara all the time. But in, in Lashen Kedish, the word chayze tends to have some more limited meaning, almost to refer exclusively to visions or uh, to, to the imagination, things of that type, rather than to actual physical vision. But the term roi and the term hashkev both refer to physical uh, visions as well as to uh, spiritual ones. So that here I think the comparison between the two can be made so, so much clearer. Now, 
I think that a couple of distinctions might be advanced. I think, first of all, the term I'm using the word, of course, only the hefil, which is what the, the noun hashkafe is derived from. In in the kal and in the nifal, which which form it does occur in Tanakh, it tends to have a slightly, a slightly different meaning. But in the hefil, in terms of lahashkif, uh, I think that we might say, first of all, that in comparison with re'iya, that hashkafe tends to be somewhat more active. Uh, in other words, that it's not merely passive, just the absorption of, uh, of a certain sense of experience, the way we think of vision or sight generally, uh, but that it's a much more conscious uh, act of, of vision. Of course, in a sense, uh, we should probably think of all sights as being, every act of vision or see, seeing something, looking at something, uh, as being a more or less uh, an active one, not merely a something just impinges upon us passively, but that we actually are engaged in a in a pula, in a mice, in an action which we ourselves do, although popularly we probably don't don't think so. Popularly, I think, the general tendency is to look of, you see something, uh, not that you are necessarily straining to do so or actively engaged in doing so, that this is merely, uh, you walk through the street, you happen to see it, what can you do? I mean, can you, can you not see it? It's an almost involuntary and wholly uh, passive performance. And... Uh, I think this is a fairly, I think, the ordinary, the, the popular conception, and one which from time to time gets uh, some sort of explicit expression. Some of you may be familiar with a well-known, uh, uh, well-known early poem of Wordsworth, in which he speaks uh, in this vein, the, the eye cannot choose but see, the ear cannot choose but hear. And uh, actually, there is a whole, uh, well, a whole school of... Uh, psychology, which was based on this conception not only of sight, although sight was the one they primarily operated with, but uh, on the conception of sensual experience, of sensory experience generally as being of a wholly passive nature, so that a person is seen as being completely uh, passive, as sort of in a yacholak, what's called a tzvula rasa, sort of a blank table or blank sheet, uh, on which various sensory experiences simply impress themselves, and that uh, his personality is then simply molded, his whole character, simply molded by the sum total of these experiences which somehow are, just how is never explained, but which somehow are welded and molded within his uh, personality, what is known as sensationalistic, or it's, uh, sensational if you want. Uh, <laughs> the reason I laugh is there was once a, a graduate student who was an examiner, this is a Radcliffe, I think, uh, who was asked to discuss Locke's, uh, Locke's sensationalism. And of course the reference was to this, this notion which was popularized by Locke that uh, human consciousness and human knowledge all as a result simply of senses which impinge themselves on, on the mind and uh, she apparently misunderstood the question so she said well I don't think Locke is sensational at all <laughs> <laughs> but anyway this whole school of uh, say Locke's school is one which primarily tended to operate with a sense of sight uh, I mean when they would discuss this problem uh, they would tend to discuss this primarily because uh, here perhaps you have a the clearest, the most obvious example of things that, you know, very sense exp- uh, impressions that, uh, that we absorb. But, uh, uh, pr- quite likely, I think, uh, or, I mean, certainly from our point of view, I mean, this, this whole psychology, of course, is one which has to be rejected. I mean, this whole conception of uh, man beginning as sort of a blank, a totally blank sheet, uh, just sponging up impressions like a telephone exchange, and then these are somehow uh, molded, uh, developed within him. And, uh, of course, the whole concept of free will becomes very extremely difficult, if not meaningless, uh, from this point of view. And uh, it's wrong not only of, 
uh, one, a total view of human psychology and human personality, but it's specifically probably wrong in the sense of sight uh, as well. If I might, uh, I might refer to a contemporary of Wordsworth. I think a another uh, another quotation, which from our point of view is much more apt. Uh, uh, Blake once mentioned, I think very very correctly, that one doesn't see with the eyes, but rather through the eyes. I mean, just as you don't see with your glasses, you see through your glasses. With regard to the glasses, we perhaps understand it more readily, but we should think probably of the eyes in the same sense, so that the act of vision should be seen not as a merely passive one, as if, you know, just light being reflected somehow uh, from a certain sense organ, but as being a, a conscious um, act of personality. And the words with himself later on was to speak of this act of receiving impressions as being not only a completely passive one, but he spoke of a wise passiveness and, and another poem of a mighty world of eye and ear which we half create and half perceive. So the act of perception itself should be seen as a rather uh, a rather creative one. And this, I think, is generally important for our conception of, uh, of the relation between personality and sense impressions uh, generally. And uh, from this point of view, I personally feel, of course, much more sympathetic uh, to many more, re- more recent writers who have uh, reacted somewhat against the mechanistic conception of the human mind, which is suggested by this uh, insistence upon sense impressions are simply formulating one's whole personality. Uh, I don't mean to say that, you know, that all modern psychologists uh, have deviated from it by no means. For instance, behavioristic psychology is founded almost completely upon this conception of uh, human personalities being nothing more than something which reacts and reacts uh, if sufficiently trained, completely in an automatic and mechanical fashion uh, to certain external uh, stimuli to various external impressions. But uh, this is only one school. Of course, from our point of view, behavioristic psychology is something which is totally unacceptable. But there are many others, particularly those who have insisted on, is somewhat m- on emphasizing the role of the mind in symbolic uh, creation and the power of imagination, uh, who've tended to reject this sort of conception of personality. And uh, certainly, we should uh, certainly do so. But still, while this is true, in other words, while I think we should think of all sensory experiences being, in a sense, creative. Uh, still, there are obviously are different degrees, and there are different uh, types of activity, and uh, some which are more creative than others. And I think that, relatively speaking, when we think of the uh, ear, we do think of it as something which can be, at any rate, and uh, perhaps generally is, relatively speaking, somewhat more passive and uh, less conscious than a word like hashkofe. Like and if you look, for instance, in Tanakh, I think you'll find almost invariably that the Ashkoff is thought of as being a very active and a very conscious act of vision. In other words, I go out of my way somehow to look at something and that I strain to do so. Uh, just a number of examples. There you have a passage in which both Vayashkev and Vayar are employed, and you can see the difference immediately. In other words, uh, as far as looking out over the whole area of Sleva Amaira, this is not something that just vayar. I mean, just not just something you happen to notice. This is something you've you've got to look. You've got to strain yourself. So looking out upon this whole area. So then, once he had already looked out vayashkev, then already when he was already engaged in this act of looking, in this conscious straining, then of course when he was already looking at that territory and had gone to do so, then vayar. I mean, then whatever was there, uh, of course he he just happened to see. Or again, with the God of Melach, uh, a little bit later on, 
But of course, once when he was at the window, then it was no chachma to see what was in the other window. I mean, but it was the initial act of going to the window and straining to look, which was already a volitional one, an act of will, expression of his own desire. Then once he was there, naturally, and similarly, in the in earlier pasuk, when they got to the malachim, they kumi shama anoshim, they yashkif well today sudayim. Again, that they had to strain themselves to look out. And it's in this sense that we find the word hashkafa usually employed with reference to the Levin shleila. It is employed in Tanakh in a number of places. Uh, for instance, the pasuk in Tilim, which is repeated in two places in almost identical versions, uh, Hashem in one pasuk says Hashem, another was alakim. Hashem yishemayim hishkif al bnei adam liroi sagish maskil derech salakim. Eventually, searched throughout the whole world, searched among mankind to see whether there was a masculine person of intelligence who was seeking the Eventually, apparently, it was not something you could just look. You had to, you couldn't just see. You had to search for this. There's a sense of an almost conscious act of looking. Or again, with the Tzila that we have, you remember in the parsha of Yisrael that. Specifically, that the Ben there should be a special act of grace, so to speak, an act of Ghatsan on the part of the Ben for which we have to be misfollowed. Otherwise, what's Hashkifa Mimayim Kachacha? What's the Ben Shalom is a Ghayim? Of course, he sees everything. What's Hashkifa? Somehow, a special type of vision that we misfollowed. What the Ben should look down with a certain special Ghayim, a certain Ghatsan, that this type of Ghayim is what we misfollowed for. And uh, in another Pasuk in Tilim, actually, we give. We made it to the Ben Shalom for this particular type of Riyah. The Pasuk mentions we should be varech and we made it to the Ben Shalom. Ki hishkif mibreim kodshay, Hashem mishamayim alara tibit. That uh, this act of a vision of grace has somehow been granted and uh, for this we are made it. So this is one distinction I think. that We think of Hashkaf as being a very active and a very conscious act of vision. Secondly, I think that almost invariably, uh, Hashkaf suggests that... Uh, as distinguished again from Re'iya, uh, it suggests a, an act of vision which is rather comprehensive in nature. There's usually an association of breadth, or scope, or sweep, uh, looking out of an entire area. Uh, whereas a term like Re'iya can refer really to anything, I mean from the infinite to the infinitesimal and any intermediate uh, element, Hashkafa usually is limited to a whole scene or a whole arena. It's thought of not merely a scene, but somehow as surveying, and uh, it's very sukkim that I quoted earlier, I think will clearly bear this out, looking out over an entire area, or the Hashem some of the whole world needed to be spanned in this act of vision. Uh, so that, uh, whereas Ria very often can refer to even a minute object, with the Gata Ashkafu we very rarely think of a specific minute detail, but rather of a sweeping vista. It's a type of ri'ah, a type of vision, which is never myopic, but always rather panoramic in, uh, in character. This is, of course, what the word, you know, panorama means. I mean, orao in Greek means to see, and pan means everything. So that it's not just to see, but actually to survey. And uh, in its fullest sense, therefore, to be most comprehensive, would mean really trying to survey everything and to grasp within one single act of comprehensive vision uh, everything that one could possibly see. So this is a second distinction, I think, between Riyah and Hashkafir. 
Uh, I think there's a third that usually the term hashkofe suggests not uh, not merely uh, ordinary vision. Uh, I mean ordinary in the sense uh, here. I mean even assuming the sweep. But I mean in terms of the quality of the vision, not the quantity, not how much is encompassed, but the manner in which it's encompassed. I think usually hashkofe suggests actually a more intensive type of vision. So it's not only ext- more extensive than the ear may be. Of course, the term Riyah is a more generic term. It could refer to all types of Riyah, but I'm speaking now of the specific uh, meaning of Hashkafa. Riyah may refer to all types of vision. I mean, whatever a person may have seen, he happened to see something, he was walking the street, and he saw something was, was happening. But uh, Hashkafa means a more intensive type of vision, one which is a careful type, and where something we look with. Uh, with perspicacity and with a desire actually to somehow to be aimed al to penetrate, to more penetrating type of uh, of vision. For instance, the Nazil almost invariably translates the term hashkafe vayashkef veoidik, and he was medayik to unkelus dad, unkelus tanish tanzis techiu, yishen socha samech samech But Yisroel Nazil almost always veoidik, and he he looked penetratingly, sharply. Insight. Uh, or for instance, the Gemara in Brachis, the Gemara speaks of the Gati Shmuel Akotten, the story there with the Gati Bikas Aminim. Of course, there it was already in a transferred sense, in the sense of, uh, of thinking deeply, not the literal, the physical act of vision, but in terms of thought. But you see the same term. The Hishkifah, the Gemara says, he was thinking about the matter, Shtayim Veshalashoyes. He was pondering it for two and three hours. The Gemara uses the term Hishkif. Because again, there is this sense of intensity and inter- with reference to the act of vision. So that, although on the one hand we think of Hashkofer as being very sweeping, and uh, so that it's not merely to see but to survey, and it's very extensive in nature. On the other hand, it is also very intensive in nature. So we would use not so much to say a term like to see, but an equivalent with regard to this characteristic would be, let's say, a term like to peer or to gaze, and where you think actually of one who's trying somehow to enter the very nature of an object or situation and penetrate to its very inner core and its inner depth. So we have then three characteristics of the term hashkeif. I'm still using the term simply in its basic physical sense. Uh, one is that we think of it as a very active and a very conscious uh, act. Uh, secondly, that it is very sweeping and extensive and that is comprehensive. And thirdly, uh, that it is rather intensive in nature. Now, all of this, I say, is simply with reference to the initial uh, physical term uh, of Hashkafa, simply as an act of vision. The various sukkim that I've quoted uh, generally refer to this simply to seeing, uh, seeing it through the eyes. Uh, we're not immediately concerned with this, of course. We're concerned already with Hashkafa in its metaphorical sense. Uh, in other words, in terms of uh, view of whether it's some sort of philosophical orientation. Uh, but it's important to consider these characteristics. I'll come back to them later on. I think that they are quite relevant. But from this, I'd like to go on now to consider what is actually the object of Hashkof. When we think of Hashkof in, in the sense in which it's employed uh, in our context, in other words, with reference to a Weltanschau or some sort of world perspective, a world view, uh, what more specifically do we mean? What is the content, so to speak, of, of this Hashkof? Of course, in one sense, uh, one could very simply say everything. Uh, everything is included in, or has to, not only is, but must be included 
uh, in Ashkafer because uh, what we mean after all is a world view and a world perspective so anything which exists and is therefore an object of cognition an object of contemplation uh, somehow must be embraced within one's world view I mean everything must uh, in a sense uh, be accounted for you can't really omit anything and say well this doesn't fit into the scheme because unless you are able to embrace everything, to have a totally comprehensive scheme, uh, you really can't say you have a worldview. It means you have a view of uh, one aspect of existence, of one particular element, of one area, but not a world perspective. And well, we do think of Ashkafi in those terms. And uh, this is probably correct, uh, that everything really should be included. But, uh, so that uh, we should embrace, really, in the, within Ashkafi Asylam, the term that we, uh, that we employ, uh, we should really embrace the whole physical world, the whole human world, and even, to the limited extent, of course, that man can uh, apprehend it, uh, the transcendental world as well. But, of course, from a practical point of view, uh, this is rather rather difficult, and to say that we think of Hashkaf as embracing everything, and that within a total view that we must have we must account somehow for everything, be able to explain the nature of the whole world, the nature of the physical, the human, the transcendental world, that all of this must somehow be taken into account and taken care of. Uh, obviously, this is something which is not, uh, not feasible. And uh, usually when we think of Ashkafa, Ashkafa Selah, we think of it in terms of not simply something which accounts for all of existence in the sense of answering every question we may have about its physical nature, about its moral nature, we usually think of it uh, more in terms of a worldview which is more or less philosophic in nature. In other words, uh, that which uh, doesn't necessarily explain, let us say, all, all the questions we may have about the physical basis of the universe in terms of various details involved, but uh, which will enable us somehow to have a framework or a frame of reference within which we are able to place or to consider various um, aspects of existence. Uh, so that we usually think of Ashkafa worldview uh, as uh, the answer, so to speak, or we think of it in terms of answers to certain questions and certain problems. When I say problems and questions, I don't mean in terms of doubts. I don't mean in terms of the answer to certain specific skeptical uh, questions that might arise. But I mean simply the sort of questions that any person would have to ask uh, about the, the nature of the world, about the man's place within it, the, the relation of the the visible world, to the transcendental order, and so on, so that uh, simply any person of intelligence endowed with a spiritual character would have a certain range of problems which would arise and which would cry out in a sense for an answer, so that uh, he, would have some, he would have to have some adequate conception of uh, where he is and what he is and where the world is and what the relation is among the various elements within it. And uh, the sum total of these would be said to constitute some high world view, in other words, a certain framework, uh, or a certain skeleton, if you wish, of course the extent to which it's filled out depends on the individual, but at least a certain skeletal framework, uh, which would indicate to us what, or would indicate to any given individual, what his conception of, of the world and of man's, and of course the Benjamin's relation to it, uh, would be. Now, these questions or the problems that would arise, of course, could vary in many ways. They obviously are almost infinite in nature. But uh, I think at least one major distinction uh, should be established for our particular purposes. 
Uh, I think we might keep in mind a distinction which might divide problems generally into two groupings. Uh, I don't mean that these are the only two, or that there aren't others which are of significance, but I think at least for the purpose of plotting the territory, so to speak, uh, that at least this distinction should be kept in mind. Uh, there will be, first of all, uh, what I might describe simply as general problems. In other words, uh, problems which are not specifically related to, to us, as Jews, at the Knesset Yisrael, and its peculiar nature as such, but simply general spiritual problems which are relevant uh, to any, uh, any individual or to any any philosophic system, with any religious uh, order, to any attempt somehow to come to grips uh, with reality and man's place within it, and to answer these questions. Uh, these questions may vary, again, they're not limited to any particular area, these may be metaphysical problems about the nature of the, the universe, the nature of man, and so on, uh, I mean, problems concerning the nature of the human soul, the relation of the soul to the body, I mean, things of this type. Uh, there may be ethical problems about uh, ethical norms, how a person should behave, how a person should conduct himself, what should be his relation to others, what should be his, uh, or even apart from his relation to others. I mean, ethics is not all social ethics. There are many uh, elements which are simply personal ethics regarding how I should behave, even if it doesn't affect someone else. Whether or not I, for instance, a person should indulge and drink to excess, it's not a essentially a social problem. A person will lock himself up in his house and but we know that he'll never break out of the house, he won't destroy anything. Uh, it's a question of personal ethics. Honesty is not a social virtue purely, but it's a social virtue too. But uh, even if it had no social implications, it would also be something which would be required of a person. So there's a dimension of social ethics and personal ethics. So, but all of these are problems which are in no way specifically Jewish in character. These are simply general religious or philosophic, or if you wish, spiritual problems, which are relevant to any person, simply qua person, and anyone finding himself within, uh, within the world as a spiritual being would be confronted with these problems and would be forced to develop some sort of hashkafe by way of responding, uh, responding to them, trying somehow to answer uh, the problems which his confrontation with the world and his confrontation with his fellow man and with himself uh, would pose uh, for him. Now, this is one group of problems. Then there are, of course, a second major group, which can concern us specifically uh, as Jews, and, uh, or more specifically, if you will, as B'nai Tere, questions which are related very directly to our own historical position, our own historical experience. Uh, so, for instance, uh, questions about uh, the nature of Tere, our relation to it, the specific relation between Kness Yisrael and Dumis Elam, I mean, our historical position vis-a-vis the world uh, generally. These are all questions. There are, of course, many others. Uh, these are all questions which are particularly related uh, to, to us uh, as Kness Yisrael, the nature of mitzvah, the basis of our obligation as distinguished, let us say, from the type of obligations that were imposed upon Dumis Elam, the Shemit Neneach, uh, eschatological problems, our view of Achis Hayomim, what our conception simply of the, the goal of history is, all of these are questions which are, in a sense, very specifically uh, ours. So, we should think of both types of problems, and I mention this particularly because we also should think many times of the type of solution that we are developing. I mean, there are some problems for which, quite conceivably, 
uh, we may have the uh, some general problems which we may quite conceivably uh, have the same answer as uh, many of the Umar have. I mean, there are many problems which are common to us and to them, and uh, with respect to which uh, their solution or solutions which they have advanced or which they have made explicit may very well be very valid for us as well, and with respect to which we have a great deal to learn from them in many cases, and uh, where we may find ourselves very often on common ground. I say all very often, not necessarily. Of course, to many of the general problems, we also have radically different answers. I mean, uh, for instance, Greek mythology, let us just take one example, uh, is of course one attempt uh, to come to grips with the problem of man's relation with nature and with the transcendental world. Uh, it's one imaginative response to the problems which were posed to one nation and one group of people when they found themselves confronted with a world which they couldn't quite fathom and which they tried somehow to explain and uh, mythology generally, I mentioned Greek mythology because it's best known, but mythology generally is an attempt to explain in imaginative terms and symbolic terms uh, the nature of the the universe and of the three elements which are involved in it, in other words, man, the physical universe, and the transcendental order. Now, of course, we have the same problem as well, but our answer, of course, was of a radically different type, and so that here we, we are on totally different ground, even though we're grappling with the same problem. Uh, there are many ethical problems, though, with respect to which uh, solutions advanced, let's say, by some, uh, by some Greek thinkers may be very valid uh, for us. Oh, with reference to the second grouping, of course, the problems which are of their very nature specifically Jewish, uh, the solutions, of course, must be of their very nature specifically Jewish as well. So now, putting these two points together, in other words, what I mentioned at the outset about the nature of the act of Hashkofer, uh, what we mean by Yashkev and Lahashkev, uh, and uh, the second point, what the object, what the scope, what the area within which Hashkaf operates is, uh, we, we find then the Hashkaf is, first of all, and I speak now of Hashkaf first as a process and secondarily as a product. You know, we, a term like Hashkaf refers to both, both the process of vision and also that which is produced by it. Just as, for instance, let us say we use a term like analysis. We really mean two things. You should never confuse the two terms. We think of analysis as a process, simply the act of distinction, the act of dividing, or whether it be chemical analysis or mathematical analysis, whatever it may be, then we think also of the result of it. I mean, we say that this person produced a brilliant analysis. So we mean not the act, we refer away to the product. And the same thing is true of Hashkofer as well. There is the act of Hashkofer, the act of developing a certain world perspective. There is then the result, that which is produced by it. We're thinking first of Hashkofer in terms of a process, which is of course the initial one, because the product is a result of the process, of course, and not vice versa. So we find, first of all, that Ashkaf is active and vital, that it is comprehensive, and yet uh, an intensive view of the nature and purpose of the natural, the human, and the transcendental worlds, constituting finally, and here we come from the process to the product, a uh, philosophic system which may be said to embody the Astera with respect to the vast range of problems relevant to these areas, in other words, the relation the nature, the character, the relation between the natural, the human, and the transcendental orders. And uh, to put it differently, of course, this means the uh, problems which are relevant to, uh, to life in its totality. So that what is embraced by Hashkofer, in terms of the, its content, finally, is first of all a certain dogma, 
and secondly, a certain ethos. Uh, ethos, E T H O O S. Uh, what? Uh, well, it means uh, well. The term ethics is derived from it. In other words, an ethical system or a rule of a rule of life, if you will. In other words, in practical terms. Uh, so these two elements must are invariably included in, Ashka, in any Ashkafen. I mean, it's partly dogma, of course, by its nature is more abstract, and uh, ethos by its nature is somewhat more applied. But both obviously are relevant to uh, to a Ashkafen. When I say dogma, I'm using the term in uh, more in its basic sense. Unfortunately, the term dogma has become very mis- misunderstood. People usually think of dogma or term, particularly the adjective dogmatic. Uh, as referring to an attitude which is taken uh, in a, or which is presented in a very authoritarian way, and uh, so that we say if someone is dogmatic, we mean that he doesn't he doesn't think he's very intolerant, that he's very insistent and in impressing his opinion upon someone else, and we think we use the term we say well a dogma that's something that uh, a person shouldn't think about that he just has to accept and and so on. Uh, the term has tended to assume uh, these associations because uh, usually what has happened is the term dogma has been associated particularly with certain, you know, with historical religion and the tendency has been to think of it in terms of statements which were imposed by a particular uh, religious organization upon uh, its adherents, upon its members, and uh, that therefore a sort of opposition is to be t- uh, set up between the dogma on the one hand and the rational thought, for instance, uh, on the other. Uh, this, of course, is... Well, I mean, I'm not denying that the word has this sense, but uh, this is by no means the only sense of the word, and uh, the word dogma, simply in terms of its, its semantics in the Greek, uh, refers simply to one's world, uh, to one's, what one thinks, uh, really. I mean, one's view of the... And uh, right, in this sense, it should be understood simply as one's view of the world, or one's view of, uh, of one's position in it, and uh, so on. And uh, obviously, it's impossible to have any religious system, or any philosophical system, without dogma conceived in, uh, in this sense. And uh, you sometimes find people who, particularly in Germany, there was a tendency towards this, uh, who like to tell you that somehow there's no dogma in, uh, in Yahadus, I mean, that there's no no dogmas in Judaism, that they're just rules of conduct, and rules of behavior, they're just mitzvah mitzvahs, and no, uh, no abstract um, principles. Uh, I mean, this is, of course, nonsense. Not only is it historically nonsense, because, of course, there are certain dogmas, I mean, there are certain mitzvahs, and emunah, and so on, but uh, not only are there, but it's inconceivable that there should not be. But is it then possible that there shouldn't be a particular, uh, a particular hashkofer that the others should have with regard to with reference to our historical role and so on. I mean, it would be impossible to conceive even of any religious order, any philosophical system, which should not have some notions uh, with regard to this. And the attempt to take all of the Hadus and reduce it simply to certain um, certain mitzvahs maithia, it's sort of an attempt that I say that was made particularly in Germany and was made to a certain extent initially by Mendelssohn. He he was very keen on this point of view that the uh, Hadith is all mitzvahs maithias. It's all practical actions. And there's nothing besides that. Uh, nothing in the way of belief and to a certain extent, of course, it tended to eviscerate uh, the emotional aspect of mitzvahs as well. I mean, he was, after all, part of the Enlightenment. But, 
Unfortunately, you encounter this point of view sometimes. I mean, even in uh, some who succeeded him in Germany. I mean, I mean, even of uh, people who have been Eitzeh also, you sometimes have uh, this point of view. But it's something which obviously not only is wrong, but must be wrong. It's inconceivable, really, that there shouldn't be a certain element of dogma. I'm using the term in this sense. To what extent there are dogmas in the other sense, I'm not uh, discussing now. So there's first of all this, and secondly, of course, a certain uh, ethos, simply, and of course, the Yadis is not only an abstract system, but it is very, and pre- very much and preeminently, and this is to a large extent what distinguishes it from other religious systems, it's an ethos, a rule of practical life and practical behavior. And... Uh, this is important to keep in mind. We should never think of it either in terms of one or the other. I mean, it's never think either in terms of some only just sort of world perspective or only in terms of practical mitzvahs. And historically, wherever there has been an attempt to divorce one from the other, what has happened is a total um, a uh, a total failure to retain even that element which one was interested in maintaining. Well, I mean, uh, liberal Ju- Judaism or well, Reform Judaism is usually known here, uh, is the best example. You just see what happened in the way in which it has come full cycle. Initially, you see in the 18th century, for instance, when Mendelssohn first began to write, uh, his claim was that, on the contrary, you see, that it's all mitzvah smithias. He was interested in emphasizing uh, that Yadus uh, in no way uh, impinges upon one's philosophic beliefs, so on, so that one should be absolutely free to be in every sense a man of the Enlightenment, and yet to remain a Jew. Uh, of course, this is a would involve a lot of double of double dealing because the whole many of the basic philosophical conceptions of the Enlightenment are uh, simply absolutely contrary to every element of Yahadus. So uh, what he did was to say, well, that uh, there really is no Jewish philosophy in the sense of certain beliefs. So on. I mean, it's all all its rules of behavior and rules of conduct. Just do that, and the rest is the safe covered love. You don't have to worry. Of course, what has happened finally is that today the uh, this movement has completely rejected all mitzvahs mitzvahs, and now they you see they have tied to us why we are so formalistic and why we are so legalistic and why we insist so much on the practical elements of religion and to the neglect as they feel of certain intellectual and philosophic elements on the one hand, or emotional elements on the other, which is exactly, it's an exact inversion of what Mendelssohn's original, let me read, for instance, the Yerushalayim, uh, the exact inversion of what Mendelssohn's initial position uh, has been. So we should never try to somehow divorce these two elements. It's Habo Hotalia. I mean, it's impossible to conceive of one in terms of the Ashkaf of Yadu, to conceive of one without the other. All right, so this is more or less what we understand Ashkafe. Now, as I've said, obviously, if Ashkafe is to be so total and so all-embracing, uh, it probably really is beyond the ken uh, of man. It's really not possible for a person to have this total Ashkafe. I mean, a person cannot uh, have a total worldview which would simply embrace uh, everything. And, uh, of course, in terms of having a complete grasp uh, this is, of course, only possible for the Rebbein I mean, This is not for human capacity. But, uh, nevertheless, this doesn't mean that a person should not attempt to develop a Hashkofen, to master, to the best of his ability, the Hashkofen Salem of Yadus. Of course, all human existence is conditional. Everything that a person does is imperfect. I mean, nothing that we do uh, reaches Shlemus. Shlemus is only possible for the Rebbein But, nevertheless, this is our 
task here to try to have this as an ideal, to have that as perfection and in the sense of completeness and wholeness as an ideal and to strive toward it. And the same is true with the God to Ashkafa. I mean, a person, after all, has to try to understand what his position is in the world. And again, to try to understand both in terms of the philosophic uh, underpinnings, so to speak, of Yahadut, and also in terms of one's practical uh, role. You know, the Mesir Shalom begins, as you said, that a person should know in terms simply of one's, that the basis of religious life is for a person to try to know what is his duty uh, in the world. And of course, not all Hashkaf is concerned with the sense of duty, although obviously Musar is. Uh, a lot of it is concerned not so much with duty, which is more the element, the ethical uh, element, but uh, a lot of it is concerned simply with being able to grasp how we understand the, the world. And uh, what we need to do is simply to strive to the best of our ability to grasp it, and for the rest, all right, well, we can't do it. All right, now, uh, I've, I mentioned that I want to uh, make this limu, this attempt to somehow work within the area of Hashkafe, uh, that I want to root this more or less uh, in the Ramban, the limu of the Ramban. Uh, there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, first of all, I think it's good to be anchored in a text. Uh, otherwise, it's perhaps easy to, to get lost. Uh, then why just Ramban? Because uh, Ramban, first of all, was perhaps more than any any other region, uh, perhaps a single source, which first of all is very close to the text directly. I mean, after all, it's written directly on Chumash. And secondly, within the Ramban, you have the confluence of probably more of the main streams of, uh, which have entered into Das Tera, I mean, into Ashkaf historically, than perhaps than any other region. I mean, uh, Ramban. Chumash, Tzmolev Yagodush, with Haloche, with Agode, with Ibn Hazal, with Kabbalah. Uh, Ramban was familiar, closely familiar also, with some of the philosophic elements which tended to enter with the Meranavuchim, for instance. He comments on the Meranavuchim many times in the course of his Pirush. And what you can get in the Ramban is, I think, at the same time, a derech in the Havana of Chumash, which is indispensable. And, of course, I mean, the, the basic thing of Chumash is, of course, Rashi. But Rashi tends to comment on individual psukim. And while there is an underlying pattern very often in Rashi's approach to Chumash as a whole and to certain parshas, it's not something which is so readily visible. Whereas in the Ramban it's much clearer. The Ramban, first of all, approached whole parshas. Ramban didn't work only on individual psukim. Whole parshas and whole problems in a way in which Rashi didn't. And uh, so that within the Ramban you come across the elements of Ashkaf and certain problems much more immediately, much more directly. So I think that uh, from this point of view, I think the Ramban is a rather good choice. Uh, however, I think it should be clear, I'm not going to stick only to the Ramban. The Ramban is to be a basic text and a sense of point of departure. Uh, I mean, we're going to learn it. I want simply that we should know the text. But uh, we will be going somewhat beyond it. And uh, as a point of departure to start, uh, I'm not going to go beyond it today, but uh, I probably won't even get to it. Uh, but rather to anticipate somewhat uh, the problem which Ramban touches upon, the problems I should say, which Ramban touches upon in the Hakdomi. Uh, the Hakdomi is a very important text for the understanding of the Ramban. Uh, it contains, in, in germinal or in seminal form, uh, much which the Ramban develops throughout its Pirush, and much which he doesn't develop, but which he assumes. You know, generally, if you want to understand a, a thinker, you very often have to look not at what he says, what he doesn't say. Because very often, it, it's 
things that a person doesn't say which are most revealing as to his approach and as to his method of thought. In other words, the things that he takes so much for granted he doesn't even uh, feel the need to discuss them. This is true, by the way, not only of an individual, this is true also of even a larger sense of certain periods. I mean, uh, you will usually find that in any historical period, the basic assumptions are those that no one bothers really to, to formulate, because everyone takes them for granted. And today, for instance, historians of the Renaissance uh, have to look in third and fourth-rate writers in order to find the basic, some of the basic philosophic premises, which obviously underlie the work of some of the major thinkers, except that the major thinkers took them for granted, never bothered to enunciate them, and uh, it's only in some byways that you may find a clear formulation of things which you then can find back, as you, by going back, you can then trace them in the works of some major writers. But anyway, this is true of individuals as well, but here in the, uh, in the Akdome, you find that Amban formulating rather consciously some of the assumptions which otherwise underlie a good deal of his pirush, Amman's approach, really, to Sechumish. Uh, and, um, uh, but before getting into that directly, I want to more or less place this, the Amman's discussion within a larger and somewhat broader frame of reference. Uh, a frame of reference which perhaps uh, might be introduced by some of the uses of the word Hashkeh that I mentioned earlier, uh, perhaps particularly the the problem that I want to discuss is uh, the problem of the nature of Hisgalus or Gilui, uh, I mean Hisgalus of the Benishlam generally, and uh, this in turn is perhaps a, in itself just one aspect of a broader problem and one which is perhaps, well, I wouldn't say the most fundamental, anyway, very fundamental nature to simply to an understanding of, uh, of our position, I don't mean necessarily ours in terms of that, but simply the position uh, simply of man or of the world in relation to the Benishalim generally. The problem is viewed very simply in a, put it first in more or less metaphysical terms, in terms simply of what the relation of the Benishalim is uh, to us and, uh, or if you wish, simply to the world at large. What is the relation between the mention of the one name as the Yetzir Kale, to the Yotsu, to the Bria, uh, the Benishlam's relation uh, to that which he has created and is in one sense somehow to be seen as related to him, and in another sense somehow is being divorced uh, from him. In other words, the problem which, uh, on the one hand, the Benishlam's transcendence, in other words, is being somehow, as we must assume, cut off completely from the world and in every sense above it. I mean, of course, we do not assume the pantheistic hypothesis. You know, the pantheists uh, believe that uh, Spinoza is the, the best known of, um, of them. The pantheists believe that the, that the world is somehow to be identified with, uh, with God, that God and the world are somehow one, that the existence of God and the existence of the world are to be seen as being a single existence. Uh, of course, uh, all right, this is what Spinoza uh, there have been many who more or less follow this in one way or another, but uh, of course we don't accept this for the simple reason that fundamentally pantheism really is just a disguised form, at least for a theist, is a disguised form of atheism. And what does it mean to be a pantheist? You say that the world and God are one, that God's existence is circumscribed within the world. It's another way of saying really that apart from the natural world nothing exists, uh, which of course... Uh, is fundamentally, a, as I say, for anyone who has a conception of the Rabbeinu Shleilam as, uh, 
as a transcendent and supernatural being is uh, really, an, as I say, a disguised form of of atheism. Of course, I don't mean that Spinoza himself was felt this way. And you read Spinoza, and you see, I mean, there are people who speak of him as being God intoxicated and so on. But uh, all right, I mean, uh, this is maybe he was intoxicated in this sense. I don't know, but who uh, can enter me, my mocking? But uh, if so, then it involves simply a contradiction in terms of of his own thought. Uh, of course, I understand what, I, what a pantheist says is that, uh, of course, he believes in, in God. He, what he says is that nature itself is divine. In other words, nature itself is not merely physical, the way a, a person who has a mechanistic conception of the world would say, but the nature itself is, um, is spiritual in character. But uh, the minute you've completely divorced any sort of transcendental reality from the world, the minute you say that there is no such thing as a transcendental order, nothing which exists outside of the realm of nature, so what the, exactly what this sort of spiritual existence is, is very, very problematic. It doesn't, doesn't really seem to me very much. And uh, I personally, as I say, I mean, I'm, I'm rather very much in agreement with an opinion I expressed, I think, one time by Paul Shorey, an eminent student of Plato, of course, this to Shorey, well, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, of course, to a Platonist, I mean, uh, pantheism is pure anathema. Uh, as I said, this conception is uh, pantheism is a more or less uh, disguised form of, of atheism. It probably came up, by the way, in, uh, in Spinoza's time. I don't mean the business with the Cherem when he was young. But I mean, later on, there was a man, Abdavid Nita, who lived in London. And uh, he, he preached further, uh, and I don't know what it was, the Russian race, which uh, verged very closely upon uh, pantheism. And uh, there were many complaints made about it, and a letter was sent to the Chacham Tzvi. There's a true in the Chacham Tzvi, Simon Yigimel. With regard, Chacham Tzvi was the love in Amsterdam uh, at that time, in the late uh, mid, late 17th century, and uh, he he was asked to to comment uh, comment about this. But uh, but anyway, but leaving this aside, I mean, barring the pantheistic conception, uh, of course, we should assume that uh, the Benishlem, on the one hand, is of course transcendent in terms of the Benishlem's pure existence, in terms of Atzmusay, what. The being of the Ben Shalem is one which, of course, we cannot have any uh, any relation to Sheikh Nebatechemer. I mean, how can between absolute perfection and complete corruption? I mean, how can there be any relation between them? And in this sense, we speak of the Ben Shalem as being Kodesh. Well, actually, what does the word Kodesh mean? We sometimes don't quite understand the word. We think of Kodesh as being something which is consecrated and so on. Kodesh really means that which is transcendent, which is other, which is separated. And. Um, I mean, sometimes, for instance, you see in Tanakh, uh, the word Kodesh is used, really, in a sense, which has nothing to do with what we normally think, ordinarily think. We usually think of Kodesh as meaning holy and something which is related to a religious performance. In Tanakh, sometimes the, the word Sarkadesh is used in Chagai as the Gemara interprets it, to, to refer God to Shadat. And, or for instance, in the Gemara, you have all the time the word Kodesh used to the God something which is also. Uh, the mission in all uh, the Moshele, uh, these are the Dvarim that are Mekadesh. What does it mean, Mekadesh? That if they are part of a Taruvis, they are still the Taruvis. Uh, constantly, the Mishnah is all the time. So the Kodesh means this is really that which is set aside. Which is, I mean, Rashi Chumish says, Kadeshim Tiyu Purushim I mean, that which is set aside. It's not simply the semantics of the, of the word. And if we speak of the Bereshim as being Kodesh, it means that he cannot have any, in terms of his pure being and his essence and his existence, that he can really have no relation to the world. I mean, he must remain completely outside of it, and that is being, therefore, the wholly transcendental nature. 
But of course, this raises a problem. On the one hand, we say that Rashi's being existence is purely above us and beyond us. So, so the question that arises: Well, how is it possible for us to have any relation to it? So there's no <laughs> point of tangency. There's no point of contact. I mean, so elevation uh, is, so to speak, in his world, and we are somehow in our world. And uh, but obviously this is not so. I mean, obviously we feel that there is some sort of of relation. I mean, first of all, because in a certain sense, of course, uh, we do not believe that the world was uh, that the Rashi Summer contains, so to speak, within the world. I mean, this is, of course, the Medrash which Rashi quotes, the Humakaymai Shalaylam Veinelam Akaymai. The world is contained within the Benishlo, and not Chasisholim the Benishlo within the world. But still, even the fact that the world is somehow contained within the Benishlo also suggests a certain relation, a certain point of contact, a certain tangency. So that while we assume and must assume that on the one hand the Benishlo Batsmusa in terms of pure being is completely independent of the world. But nevertheless, uh, that somehow he has a certain hand in it, that somehow he's involved or engaged in it, uh, so that if on the one hand he's completely transcendent, on the other hand, we must assume that he's somehow imminent, I-double-M-A-N-E-N-T, that he's somehow involved in it, so that on the one hand he is completely, in terms of his being, independent completely, but on the other hand, that somehow the Benishlam has chosen I mean, for whatever reason, it's not for us to inquire, but for whatever reason, Benjamin was chosen somehow to create a world, and the act of creation is in itself already an involvement. The very act of creation already means that somehow the Benjamin is involving himself in the world, and then it's not only the act of creation, but then subsequently, that somehow that there is a certain relation, a certain contact between the Benjamin and us, that we somehow are able to approach him, we stand in a certain relation to him. Now, so we all, we, I mean, this problem, I don't want to go into the problem of length, I mean, it deserves a separate treatment, but this problem of, on the one hand, somehow the Benisha being seen as transcendent, on the other hand, that we cannot assume, uh, of course, when that the Benisha somehow is wholly contained and confined somehow uh, within the world, this problem is one of those which, I mean, from time immemorial, has been one of the central problems of religious thought generally, and this Historically, you can trace really the the way in which there have always been alternating emphases upon one pole or the other. It has been rather rare that one would, I mean, that you would find a culture, I mean, I speak of a religious culture, a religion, opting completely for one or the other, saying it's either all transcendence or all imminence. But it's been a question of emphasis, and one, as I say, could, if time permitted, and maybe some other time will do it, uh, could trace really this uh, historical development in which you have certain periods in which the element of transcendence is emphasized and the, the notion of the distance between the Benishlam and man or the Benishlam and the world becomes uh, supreme and sometimes almost oppressive. There are other periods during which, uh, on the contrary, there is much emphasis upon a certain kinship and a certain bond between man and the Benishlam. So, for instance, uh, I'll give one <coughs> recent example, let us say romantic theologians, uh, early 19th century theologians, uh, Schleiermacher, for instance, one example, always emphasized uh, the closeness of man and the Benishland. Somehow it's always that man and the Benishland sort of uh, melt almost uh, into one another. That the, that there's always this infinite element in man which is always sort of moving over into the infinite and always in contact with it. Uh, in our century, there's been a sharp reaction against this. The, uh, 
concert, there's been an emphasis on recognizing Ben Shlodem as being what one well-known uh, writer described as the numinous or the holy other. In other words, emphasize that the concert is a gap and a sort of an unbridgeable chasm which exists between man and the Ben Shlodem. But, uh, in any event, uh, you find always a varying emphasis upon one strand or the other. I mean, and uh, also, within our own experience, this has been true also. I mean, Chassidim, of course, by and large, are much more immanental in their approach. I mean, they always emphasize that man is very close to the Benishla, very warm, and so on. Uh, Misnagdus has tended to shy away from that somewhat. I mean, this is a metaphysical term. This is what the Goyen found so objectionable about Chassidus, that it's tended to cut down this gap so drastically until almost it spoke of absolute union the way the mystics, for instance, do. But I don't want to get involved in tracing this historically, but uh, simply just to point out one thing. Uh, this problem of the of this dual sense, and on the one hand, the one has to assume the Benisham is transcendent, Kaddish, 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 but on the other hand, somehow that the world and man stand in a certain relation to him and have a certain link and bond to him. Uh, this has produced various reactions. I mentioned pantheism already, but pantheism, of course, rejects one of the poles entirely. Uh, but apart from this, uh, there have been other reactions, particularly those who somehow have been impressed by this sense of transcendence, and who have felt that somehow you couldn't bring the Rebbein Shalom down into a world which is full of tumen, which is imperfect, and in every way corrupt, and changing, and subject to flux. Uh, there have been various reactions to this, and or rather reactions due to a sense of transcendence. There have been certain practical uh, implications. I'm speaking not now implications in terms of religious experience. Obviously, there are implications of that type too. Of course, if you think of the Ben Shalom as being a very a figure with whom you can be very close and very intimate, your religious experience will be of one type. This is that which the mystics, particularly Christian mystics, have, have always had. Uh, on the other hand, if you think of the Ben Shalom as being uh, distant and awesome and remote, uh, your experience will be of another type, not so much experience of love, an experience perhaps of, of fear. But I'm not uh, getting away from this question of what the implications are in terms of religious experience. There have been implications of this sense of transcendence uh, simply in terms of what one believes with regard to the problem that we are, uh, we'll be dealing with uh, uh, presently, uh, namely the question of revelation. I mean, after all, what What's involved in the concept of revelation is this notion that somehow the Ben Shlonim is apart from the, from the world, and yet somehow that he has revealed himself to us, and therefore has enabled man somehow to find him, to encounter him, to communicate, as it were, with him, and in some way to relate to him. But those who have thought of, who have been particularly overwhelmed by the sense of transcendence, for them, obviously, this concept of, uh, of revelation has tended to have very, very little meaning. So, for instance, if you take, let us say, Aristotle's conception of, uh, of God, the, by and large, it's a conception which tends to relegate uh, the Ben Shleilam almost uh, to the role of, uh, of one who at one time, let us say, may have somehow gotten the universe going. Although, of course, from Aristotle's point of view, that's not quite accurate. I mean, he assumes more or less the, the eternity of the... Uh, of the world, but whatever it is, whatever one understands by a prime mover in, uh, in his system, but one who is not now very directly uh, involved in the affairs of the world as such, but uh, who enjoys some sort of a contemplative existence. Uh, someone once described it as a sort of a British king, I mean, just uh, involved in passive self-contemplation with nothing else to do. Uh, but in any event, not 
of, uh, of an agent, someone who is in any vibrant sense involved somehow in the direction, creation, and movement um, uh, of the universe. And uh, first, I mentioned Aristotle. He's by no means alone. I mean, this was the Epicureans' conception too. Although they naturally thought of, uh, I mean, their conception was not so much of a contemplative, but of a, an Epicurean uh, uh, deity. And uh, but it's not Aristotle alone. I mean, this has had many modern um, counterparts, and this is, of course, one of the uh, early philosophic byproducts, so to speak, of the scientific revolution. Uh, was also this tendency to somehow push the Benishlonim further and further off the stage of nature and the stage of history and uh, to relegate him to a less and less significant role in, uh, in the world. Uh, so for instance, to take uh, Descartes, who was, was one of the fathers of the, uh, the father, the, one of the fathers of the, uh, of the philosophic side of the scientific revolution. Of course, Descartes was a first-rate uh, scientist in his own right. He's a man who wanted to develop analytic geometry, which is one of the central tools of modern mathematics. Uh, but uh, he was also a, a leading 17th-century philosopher. And uh, for Descartes, uh, you have, or emanating from Descartes, you have this notion of the world as being essentially mechanical in nature. And, of course, the mechanical things tend to be pretty much uh, self-running. I mean, you just start the motor, and then... Uh, the whole thing pretty much uh, runs by itself. And uh, with regard to the natural world, uh, this was the notion which Descartes more or less adhered to, and to, to the extent even that he didn't, uh, his followers uh, rather did. And it's the conception which uh, later on is familiarized, let us say, throughout the 18th century by, uh, by Newton's work. This notion of a sort of a clock universe which just runs pretty much on its own, which was wound up uh, at one time and then just uh, moves. Of course, Newton was a very believing, I mean, he was himself a very uh, orthodox Christian, uh, so that uh, he, you know, he did think that every so often it required a little bit of tinkering. I mean, this is what he thought a, a nest was. But in terms of an active involvement, it didn't mean very much. It was a question of, more or less, of, think of Benjamin as a great clockmaker who now is just sitting back and watching the whole thing go uh, to his satisfaction. And carrying this a step further, you see Descartes' conception was pretty much, I mean, Descartes, the Newtonian conception of the universe, uh, was pretty much, uh, was one which tended by and large to banish Lebenishlem as an active agent from the natural world, in other words, from the, uh, from the cosmos, that Lebenishlem was not involved in mechanical processes because these were governed pretty much by what was seen as an inviolable natural law. Simply, there were certain chuki which were embodied in the universe, that's the way it had to run and finish. And there was no... Uh, otherwise, the Beishalim was not actively involved. Well, I just want to... Uh, however, uh, for them, the conception of God as the Beishalim as not being very much involved in the historical process was not so prominent. In other words, as far as the natural world is concerned, this is something which they sort of felt could be pretty much uh, self-generated. And that's general, I mean, self-operating. But uh, the human world, uh, that they had much less confidence in uh, than they did in the mechanical and the natural world. So there they, they, they did still feel that there was a lot of room somehow for, for movement and for direct involvement. But uh, obviously, I mean, a corollary of the initial Cartesian view was the sort of thing which did tend to become much more popular in the 19th century. The notion of, natu- 
I'd even call it natural laws, operating not only within the physical world, but within the human world as well. And uh, while this was, let's say, in the 18th century, not so much developed, but the 19th century very much so, and you have, for instance, Comte, the French thinker, more or less the founder of modern sociology, uh, who developed all sorts of elaborate laws as to how history operates, and these to him were as much laws as, uh, as the law of gravity, as the law of, physical, um, uh, of the physical universe, uh, so that from this point of view, and there were many, many who followed him in, uh, in the 19th century, um, the, uh, there wasn't much room for involvement in the, natural, uh, in the human world as well. So this has been one reaction. Now, uh, of course, this is not necessarily, I mean, the reaction was not necessarily rooted in the fact that these people were overwhelmed by a sense of the Ben Shalom's transcendence. Some of it was due simply to other reasons, simply because they were not, uh, you know, strongly religious personalities to begin with. But in some, it was rooted in this, a sense that somehow, how could you involve the Ben Shalom in running a petty world and that he should be concerned, especially with Ashkar HaPatis and with minute elements of uh, what happens to me, what happens to this one. I mean, it's of no importance, so why should, why should he somehow be involved in it? So that somehow it was thought that to think of the Ben Shalom as being very much abstracted from the world and removed from it, this somehow would lend greater glory and greater majesty uh, to him. Now this is one possible reaction, of course from our point of view, overreaction, uh, uh, emanating from this sense of transcendence. There may be a second which would perhaps not go quite as far and would say no, that it's quite true, that perhaps the Ben Shalom is involved in the world, true, uh, but, uh, and he's involved, let us say, in guiding uh, the natural world, the human world, so that somehow his hand is imprinted upon nature and upon history, but uh, we cannot assume, the second group would say, we cannot assume that there is any sort of direct contact or any sort of direct communication. Uh, of course, uh, the Beishlem is here, but all we can have is this sort of belief, let us say, in providence, in other words, in Ashgoche, in Schaveinesh, true, all this, the Beishlem is involved in it, but the most that could be postulated from the second point of view is just a, na- a sort of natural religion. In other words, not to assume that there was or can be any sort of direct encounter, but everything somehow can be inferred secondarily. You can see somehow the hand of the Beishlem in nature, you can see it in history, but uh, you cannot assume that there should ever be any direct confrontation, so that you can think of a natural, but never, from this point of view, of a revealed religion. And uh, this again has a long history. I mean, natural religion goes all the way back to the 10th book of Plato's Laws, and uh, there are many, many who, uh, who adopted this point of view. There are others who've gone even, in a sense, uh, even further, I don't know if that goes further or not, uh, a third possibility uh, has been that even among those who have been willing to accept a, uh, a notion of revelation and of revealed religion, uh, there have been those who have questioned the nature of the revelation. There was, for instance, in the late 19th century, a man in England by the name of Mansell. He was a leading Anglican bishop. Uh, he advanced, for instance, the following thesis. Uh, Mansell said, of course, and he was an Anglican, he had to accept the notion of revelation. But uh, he said, true, of course, there is revelation, I mean, there was, but what is revealed is never truth. It's never true reality. What you see, because true reality, I mean, how can you see it? I mean, how can man somehow grasp even one element of 
of the reality, of the true reality of a transcendent Rebbein Shalom. I mean, how is it possible? I mean, we are, we are nothing, so how can we begin in any way to, uh, to pre- presume even to understand, or even to presume that somehow we've been granted by an act of grace, even by the part of Rebbein Shalom, even the Pechina Vayere. How is it possible that Rebbein came and somehow revealed himself to us? We can't, I mean, we cannot look directly, I mean, we cannot even contemplate, we cannot understand, it's beyond our grasp, the Ben Shalom is purely Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish. I said, what is revelation, he says? It's just a sort of a mirage. You are given a sort of uh, fantasy, which uh, you are told is somehow revelation, which doesn't really, what the truth is, what actually the Ben Shalom is, you don't know. Ah, you're told that you will meet this, but this is just a sort of pseudo reality which you are given, which you are told you deal with this as if it were true. And you act you live your life and the assumption as if this would be true. But actually it's not because we cannot possibly gain an insight to ultimate reality. Now, of course, uh, this point of view, I mean could be a question and it was a matter of fact, and of course from our point of view should be but uh, I simply mention it as one other instance of the extent to which this, uh, an over, what some of an overriding sense of transcendence can lead to, and what the implications are of this overriding sense of transcendence for one's conception of the nature of his galus, generally, of simply where the encounter somehow can be found uh, with the rabbinic Now, of course, it goes without saying that uh, we reject all these points of view, uh, for us, of course, his galus is something very real and very vital and uh, very basic, and that we see a very real bond uh, with Rebbe Nishleim and a real encounter that there is somehow, of course, on the one hand, Kaddish, 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 but somehow there is Vayera. Somehow these two need to be reconciled. How I don't, I don't discuss now, but simply uh, leaving aside the question of how what the relation between these two is, but that uh, nevertheless that. We feel, of course, that there has been and there is this process of his gallows. But what the nature of this process is and what forms it takes, I mean, where and how uh, is this his gallows, uh, this is something I'll, uh, all right, which I'll have to leave for, uh, for next time. So next time I want to discuss, perhaps we get to that, by the way, <laughs> uh, I want to discuss simply different modes. I mean, uh, I'd like you to think about this too. And uh, where and how actually, uh, I mean, it's not, uh, but simply how and uh, where uh, is it possible to actually have this jibuli? I mean, where, are, where and through what door, so to speak, are we vouchsafed, are we granted this vision somehow of seeing, um, simply this sort of jibuli I mean, how is this based on somehow misgala? All right, I, I think, uh, I hope it wouldn't take me too long to get to that, it'll take a while, but... Uh, uh, then I would like to begin, or right, get started on the, uh, get started on the Amban. Some of what I'm going to discuss next time and some of what I discussed today, or perhaps you don't see immediately, is relevant to, to the latter parts of the Hakdomen. Uh, the Ramban though, begins here with what is, of course, uh, something very specific in a sense to us. I mentioned before two types of problems. Uh, with respect to, to Martin Taylor. I would suggest to you to do the following. Uh, go through, and go through, I mean, with Rashi and so on, Ramban, in Chumash, actually, the parshas, which the Ramban quotes. Uh, particularly, of course, the, the parsha in Yisrael, the parsha in the end of Mishpatim, and when it took place, actually, what happened there, the, the end of Mishpatim, when it was, 
Then the Rabbanu refers to the Gemara in Gitten uh, with reference to Tera Megillah Megillah Nitna or Tera Chesuma Nitna. Take a look at the Gemara in Gitten of Samech. It's like the Gemara, whether the Tera was given all at one time at the end of the 40 years or it was uh, given just bit by bit when each part uh, was drop by drop, uh, so to speak. The Ramban here discusses this problem as to Tera Megillah Megillah Nitna Tera Chesuma Nitna. The Ramban has one shot, or see perhaps it's possible to interpret the Gemara in another light. Take a look at the Harash and taste interpret the Gemara also. Uh, Alright, uh, okay, let's see how far we can, how far we, we can get. Yeah, alright, okay. okay. Alright, so we'll have, uh, alright, we'll have the shiri. Right,